What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Business and health chiefs have warned that England faces weeks of workplace chaos when restrictions are lifted in two weeks' time. New data suggests that about two million people per week will be at risk of contracting COVID-19 or of being asked to self-isolate. Well, the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, announced yesterday people in England will soon be able to avoid self-isolation after coming into contact with a person who tests positive for COVID-19 if they've had two vaccine doses. But that won't come into force until the 16th of August. And so business leaders argue that that still leaves employers facing weeks of staffing problems. Meanwhile, Scotland recorded the highest rates of virus cases in Europe a little over a month before the government there plans to lift most restrictions on society and the economy. The regions covering the cities of Dundee and Edinburgh were top of the World Health Organization's latest heat map. Scotland last week reported daily infections exceeding 4,000 for the first time since the start of the pandemic. Joining us now is David Linden, SNP MP for Glasgow East and the SNP's Work and Pensions spokesperson. David, thank you for being with us. Um, let me ask you then, is it really a good idea to stick to the current timetable the government is planning in Scotland, easing on July the 19th in line with the rest of the UK before phasing out almost all restrictions on August the 9th, given the really quite startling level of infections in Scotland. Well, g- good morning, Roger, and, and thank you very much for, for taking the time to, to speak to me. I mean, I, I think yes, there's no getting away from the fact that, that Scotland has had some of the, the highest numbers uh, across the U and UK and indeed across Europe. And um, when you look at that dashboard, there is no getting away from the fact that we have had some some real challenges in, in Glasgow and Edinburgh and Dundee. I think some of those challenges are now in Portugal. Um, Delta, the Delta variant was a little bit slower to arrive into Western Europe, but I think you can see that it's just beginning to tick up. And I, I think I'm, I'm afraid that you're probably going to see a, a kind of a big wave there in a few weeks' time. But there's a couple of reasons for ours that are seen in Delta is really the fundamental reason. I think um, you know that virus gets seeded into some of our, our biggest, most dense capitals. Of course, my own dense city of Glasgow. We've got less natural immunity because we haven't been at the top of, of that league table throughout the pandemic. Um, it's not a league table that, that we certainly in Scotland want to be on, and we're doing everything we can to get people off of that as quickly as possible. But there's no doubt this has been a really, really challenging time, uh, not just for my constituents, but for everybody across Scotland in terms of the Delta variant. Now, I have major criticisms about how the, the UK government, for example, has, has handled border control. There's no doubt that the Delta variant has been something that's been imported into the UK and I would say that that has not been helped by uh, poor border control, namely uh, by not putting India on the red list early enough. Um, So there are some real challenges there but my my very strong message to 
everybody listening to this is, you know, get jagged in July, make sure that you're following facts, so that's wear face coverings, avoid crowded spaces, clean your hands and surfaces regularly, adhere to that two-metre social distancing, and of course, most importantly, if you show symptoms, then uh, book a test and self-isolate. So the vaccines are very much the way out of this pandemic for us. We've got that framework that's in place yeah. from the Scottish Government, which will be reviewed, and there'll be a statement next week in the Scottish Parliament. But we are reviewing this data, not just on a, a daily basis, but on an hourly basis. It, it is incredibly concerning, and that's why caution okay. is very much the watchword of the day for us in Scotland. So does Scotland delay reopening then? Well, we're in a situation, for example, where we've got the UK government that, in my view, is being pretty gung-ho by, by moving ahead and lifting all restrictions in, I think, just a little over 12 days' time. Um, most notably, I think they are the kind of saying that they want to do away with, I heard the government minister at the weekend talking about chucking away their face coverings. I think that's, that's very, very irresponsible. Now, we in Scotland want to, to get to a position where we can lift restrictions. That is a message that I hear loud and clear from businesses in my constituency. But I think one of the things that, that's so important about all of this, and we've heard politicians, let's not forget, Caroline, we've heard politicians say this is about data, not dates, and that's why we're very much reviewing the data at the moment. But there'll be a statement in the Scottish Parliament next week from the First Minister, and we're very much hoping to make progress. But these numbers have to come down. We're very much in the ascendancy of this virus at the moment, and we want to see yeah. those numbers come down. And I think that's a point that'll be made by the First Minister in, in Holyrood next week. And David, I mean, if you're looking at this and thinking, weighing up the options, I mean, the very worrying report this morning from Scotland's NHS, seeing that, that key parts are seriously short-staffed after the surge of the number of cases, and, and obviously even some doctors forced to self-isolate. I think the Highlands' largest hospital, Regmore, Inverness, cancelling all non-urgent operations. I mean, that is a big and very worrying moment. Yeah, there's no doubt that the situation in Rigmore is incredibly concerning. I was speaking to the, the MP for, for that constituency just yesterday, and you know the situation there is concerning. I think that's why it's important that we are cautious throughout this process. And I go back to that point, and I'm, I'm sorry to repeat myself, and I know that perhaps politicians being consistent might be a, a novel concept. Um, that's why it's important to look at the data, not the dates. Um, so often this British government has gone ahead looking for that, that good headline, um, but in an issue of, of, of national importance, such as managing a pandemic, I'm afraid that public health comes before popularity. And that's why we're focused on that data. We're reviewing it every day. And there'll be a statement in the Scottish Parliament next week. But what about the government's point that, OK, cases may go up, but actually that link has been severely um, weakened between cases, hospitalisations and deaths. And therefore, um, there are other issues, other priorities. You know, reopening the economy is also about public health as well as livelihoods. Yeah, I think that's really important, Caroline, and we are very focused in making sure that we do the right things by the economy as well. That's why there's that record support being passed on to the Scottish Government in terms of support to business. Um, but I think it's also really important in, in this case as well to, to look at the wider picture. One of the, one of the big issues that I think is so often missing from this conversation is the impact of long COVID. So it, it seems to me, I mean, we had, for example, the, the, Secretary of, the new Secretary of State for Health uh, Sanjay Javid suggesting that could, we could be in a situation, Caroline, where we have 100,000 cases a day in the UK. So, in essence, I think what we're looking at from the UK government and the message that I was detecting this week is that they're very content now to let COVID almost kind of rip through society. Now, one of the consequences of following that strategy of letting COVID rip through society is that, particularly along, amongst the younger generation, for example, I've got a member of my staff who, who was only vaccinated yesterday. That's the first dose of the vaccine. 
So you're talking about these restrictions being lifted in just two weeks' time when they won't have the, the, the kind of full level of coverage. So you almost let that coronavirus rip through the population. And I think there are some profound consequences when it comes to long COVID, particularly among young people. We do not, we do not know enough about long COVID at the moment. And so I think that's why this, this strategy being pursued by the UK government certainly has raised a number of questions which I think merits a, a bit more focus. David, let me move you on to something else entirely. Uh, there are concerns about the inner workings of the SNP. Uh, you'll be aware there have been some high-level resignations in the last few months, concerns about finances, suggestions even a police investigation, uh, money being missing, no, £600,000. No, yeah, so, sorry, Roger. Can you give me more details of that police investigation? I hear this very often in the media. Well, I, I, I'm only re- re- saying we, what we have been with has been in the Daily Telegraph and in the Scotsman. What I'm saying is, can you give me and a clarify. sense of what's going on inside the party and why it is apparently at least in disarray? Well, I think it's really important that we uh, tackle misinformation. I'm sure that Bloomberg, which is a respected media source, wouldn't want to um, put misinformation out there. Police Scotland has been absolutely crystal clear that there is no investigation whatsoever into the SNP's finances. And I think that draws a line under the matter. Well, the it's come from the Scotsman and the Scottish Mail on Sunday have said that officers are looking through emails sent to uh, the husband of Nicola Sturgeon. And, and subsequent to that, Police Scotland have confirmed that there is no investigation into the SNP. The SNP finances are audited by an independent firm. There is a robust process in place. We have a national executive committee, a new treasurer in place. Um, and I think it's important to suggest that you know the SNP is very much getting on with the day job of being a competent government in Scotland, rolling out that successful vaccine programme thanks to our uh, National Health Service, thanks to the volunteers that do it, and of course, our immense gratitude to the armed forces. But as regards the position that the SNP is in, you know, we have just won uh, a fourth election uh, just in, in May there, um, falling short just by one seat of an overall majority, which is almost impossible with the electoral system. Nicola Sturgeon herself, you know, there's been a huge vote of confidence in this SNP government, which is focused on getting us through the pandemic. And then post-pandemic, when the time is yeah. right, give the people of Scotland the opportunity to choose their future and make sure that the future of Scotland is in Scotland's hands, not Boris Johnson. Dominic Cummings says that Boris Johnson would like to reverse devolution, seize devolution in the Scottish Parliament as a disaster. He would like to roll it back, but he won't dare try. Your reaction? Well, I think that this confirms everything we know about the Conservative Party. I mean, let's not forget, Caroline, the Conservative Party campaigned against devolution in 1997. Uh, they were very opposed to the idea of Scottish Parliament. They've done everything they can, perhaps, you know, through the, the internal market bill to strip away powers from the Scottish Parliament. So this, this comes as no surprise to those of in, in Scotland who are used to a, a, a West, an intransigent Westminster Conservative government carping from the sidelines uh, and looking on with great jealousy of these positive, progressive policies coming from Holyrood. But there is no doubt, and I think it comes back to that fundamental point about the Constitution, that you know, if, if people in Scotland want a, a strong Scottish Parliament, then the best way to do that is with powers of independence. Right. Because for so long as we have decisions taken about our future by Boris Johnson, and I'm afraid we're going to see a lot more stories like that worrying one we saw from Dominic right. Cummings earlier in the week. David, last question. Yes or no, will you be backing England in the match against Denmark tonight? Well, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. There's a possibility I may be watching Borgen tonight. I'm a big fan of all things Danish, but we'll have to wait and see um, what my, my television viewing is. But yeah. I'm a 
huge fan of all things Danish that I need to be watching Borgen instead. <laughs> we'll take that on advisement. Thanks very much indeed, uh, uh, David Linden, the SNP MP for Glasgow. Thanks for joining us here on Bloomberg Westminster. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Well, election finance rules need to be tougher, according to the Independent Committee on Standards in Public Life. They've spent a year looking into regulation and enforcement of donations and campaign expenditure in elections. They've got 47 recommendations which are published today, which include more oversight of who the true source of donations is, donors must be on the UK Electoral Register, and also tougher standards should not, however, deter participation for smaller parties. Meanwhile, Tory MP Tom Tugendhat, the chairman of the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, is urging ministers to review a deal to sell Newport Wafer Fab in Wales, that is the UK's largest producer of silicon chips, to Nexperia, which is a Dutch firm owned by a Chinese company. Why? Well, he wants ministers to look at the deal under the National Security and Investment Act. Now, the business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, has suggested the government will not backtrack on plans to maintain the self-isolation requirements until August the 16th. He was asked if there could be a change and he told the BBC the government is looking at the data in real time. And finally, an investigation has been launched into the use of private email accounts at the Department of Health and Social Care. It follows reports that the former Health Secretary Matt Hancock used them for government business. Now, although the use of private email accounts doesn't itself break data protection rules, the Information Commissioner Elizabeth Denham has announced the probe. Now, inequality between homeowners and young people unable to afford to get into the, onto the property ladder, opportunities that see minority children do well at school but not as well in the world of work, the pandemic's placed a bigger burden on women and highlighted unequal pay. So the UK has its share of real problems, but it's the rhetoric that actually worries a lot of people. Uh, joining us now is the Bloomberg Opinion columnist, Therese Raphael. Therese, thanks for being with us today. Now, you've been speaking to the pollster Frank Luntz, very well-known American pollster, who's currently over here, a visiting fellow at the Centre for Policy Studies. And he's got a clear message from well, the land that used to be Donald Trump's land, I suppose, uh, to Britain. Just tell us more. Well, Luntz uh, is a sort of legendary pollster, formerly a Republican pollster, once dispensed advice to Donald Trump, who then didn't listen to him, but he was brought into the White House. And so he's been involved in, 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 well, he's sort of a political linguist, I guess, if you will. And he came to Britain because he said he was completely burnt out and disillusioned with the political landscape in the U.S. And he wanted to sort of interrogate what was similar, what was different in the U.K. Uh, and he, uh, and he's, he's a 
familiar uh, character here. He went to Oxford with Boris Johnson. They used to uh, debate together on the same team, Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, and others. So he knows the U.K. relatively well, and he's been at the Center of Policy Studies. And he did two large polls, I think 1,500 people each, and they did a demographic sampling that matched the uh, turnout of the 2019 election. And his message from that is that Britain can't afford to be complacent uh, about its own sort of culture wars burbling away in the background. Um, so he says what, what, the U, what British voters value um, is surprisingly consistent across voter groups, whether they're Tory or Labour, across age groups and regions, and that is uh, they value honesty in business and political leaders. So, you know, you hear that as a top value. It's no surprise that Matt Hancock had to resign, for example, a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. They don't really care about manifestos. They want a plan, um, but they're extremely polarized politically, despite having these common values. So how they, how voters want those values translated into policies are very, very different. And his message is that it wouldn't take much for the political language to um, really amplify those divisions and for a culture war to get to get sparked off. And I've sort of mapped that on to some of the data we've been getting on inequality. And we've seen Boris Johnson, you know, really pushing some of those buttons, uh, railing against the term white privilege. And, you know, there's not an election on the horizon. We've just had several by-elections. But in Luntz's warning, there this is an inflection point, or there will be soon. And these mm-hmm. things could really blow up. Yeah, um, I I think this is the phrase that struck me the most, this kind of concept of a left-driven wokeism that effectively alienates a lot of white voters and then on the other side, a right-driven kind of populism that ignores racial inequality and sort of exaggerates threats. I think those were the sort of two extremes that I can certainly see um, sort of being played out a little bit. I mean, yes, there is a little sense that, that Luntz has really struck on something that perhaps Britain is somewhat playing with fire in this kind of cultural issue, but it is perhaps in some ways seen as something that is being propelled by the Tory government. Yeah, I mean, he he he, he portrays those as the twin extremes. And for the Tories, uh They've got a program that, you know, is focused on leveling up the economy. But the danger for Boris Johnson is that that doesn't resonate in the way that, say, take back control in the Brexit campaign did. And therefore, he needs something to appeal not to the heads of those new northern uh, voters, the new blue wall voters, but to their hearts and and culture issues, uh, culture war issues, social conservatism, those kinds of things. Well, first of all, we know Boris Johnson excels at that as a messenger, but they do tend to have the kind of appeal that um, you know and, and that he wants in the, in an election, but also that can be dangerous. And of course, for Labour, this is also very dangerous because wokeism, by definition, as Lund says, it's conflict driven and um, and it's not clear actually where Labour is going to go with that because they're being told by Northern MPs and, and those who are trying to reclaim seats in the North that it doesn't 
fly there. Um, and yet a lot of labor voters are, as we know, urban and educated. And that is a, you know, that holds great appeal to them. So it does present a huge challenge as well for the Labor Party and a temptation for the Tories. And I think that's what Luntz is, is worried that you, you then end up, um, you know, almost by mm-hmm. default getting these, these culture wars that the U.S. has had, and they're very hard to back out of once they start. But I suppose the point, the obvious point in a way, Therese, is that someone like Frank coming over perhaps imports a certain American way of seeing things. And the fact is that Britain does have very, very different uh, history, a very different uh, racial, ethnic inequality history based on very different things, class obviously being a very key part, but also the fact that Britain doesn't have uh, a, a, a part of the population with huge historical uh, grievances uh, that need to be addressed, as we saw with the Black Lives Matter. Isn't there a risk of imposing the wrong template on this? Yeah, I have, I have to confess that was my instinct as well on, on two levels. One, as you say, there is this very different history. I mean, there are uh, uh, black uh, Britons who descend from um, from slaves, but the majority, are, I think, the vast majority are um, you know descendants of immigrants and won't have that experience. Um, and then there is also uh, a very serious. Uh, problem with a white working class underclass that is underperforming and underachieving in education, and that's very, I think, increasingly well recognized. Mm-hmm. So it it is different. The other level, I think, things are different. Is you know, this is a country that is united behind the National Health Service and having a healthy uh, NHS and a healthy economy. We do not have that in in the U.S. People are divided over um, over over all sorts of things, but healthcare being one of them. And there is a kind of civility to debate here. We don't always see it, for sure. But um, I think it's in contrast to the way, uh, the, the way polarization plays out in, in the discourse in the U.S. So I'm, I think, more optimistic than Luntz is on kind of where this goes and, 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 you know, and, what are, and what the dangers are. And I think there is some risk that, uh, you know, we see what happens in the U.S. and we think we're destined for it. And obviously Boris Johnson is a very different leader than Donald Trump. Um, and so, you know, one thinks he's, he's, a, he's a little bit more um, aware of, of, you know, what are the dangers of taking these things too far. So, you know, yeah. and the country's united for the Euros at the moment. So that's, that's a positive sign. Yeah, exactly. Well, and also I do think that there are there are basic differences in the sense that you know the UK is simply a much smaller place, much smaller population. People live much more closely together. We are kind of integrated um, much more in the sense of, of of where people live and how communities interact together. I think it's fair to say versus the US. And yes, I think that there are you know people have been actually quite surprised how united the country's been. Yes, about football for England, but also when it comes to the pandemic, right? That that the response mm. the government was planning, in some senses, we hear for a much more disparate view on on the response to the pandemic, and it's been much more straightforward. People have abided by many of the rules. Absolutely, I think the the kinds of constraints that people have quite you know cheerfully worn here would not have flown in the U.S. Um, and that's, you know, another sign that uh, that there is a little more sort of harmony than than perhaps, you know, uh, perhaps respondents tell uh, pollsters. And for you, Therese, as, you know, historically an outsider coming into this, something like the Euro, something like the football, does seem to cross an awful lot of boundaries. Do you find that surprising? 
I mean, I've been here such a long time, Roger, that it no longer surprises me. But, uh, but you know, it, 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 all of these things are factors that mitigate against um, the kind of culture war divisions that we've seen in the U.S. And I think what, you know, Caroline's point about the density of the population and a you know, sense of communities is is hugely important here. And it came out in uh, the another uh pollster and strategist Deborah Mattinson has written a book on the Red Wall not long ago. I think we, we spoke about it, and she also found this, this rooting in communities and the mm. ties that these communities uh, foster um, are, are very powerful things. And I think in the U.S., people tend to live, they're, they're more spread out, homes are yeah. larger, uh, yeah. and you, you don't really have that sense of connection in the same way. So social media becomes even more dominant in people's lives. And as we know, that be, yeah. you know, leads to sort of filter bubbles and, and more divisions. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.